Okay, well, let's go ahead and read these then. So the act of obedience, true or false, is a name given to Christ's eager willingness to die for sinners. False. False, what is it? It's uh, passive. Okay, yeah, the passive obedience would be his willingness to die for sinners. What's active obedience then? His righteous life. Right, so his law-keeping obedience, yes, his, his righteous life, correct. Very good. True or false, number two. Most of the major missionary movements of modern church history have been led by Christians who believe in a definite or limited atonement. False. I'm put false. Was that in the lecture? You know, I'm not sure. What I don't, do I don't remember. I don't remember it. But the answer, the answer is true. Really? Yeah. Thinking of like the Reformation or... Oh, because of ref- I had to read uh, Mark Snowberger on that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I always thought it was funny. At, uh, when no, was, you did mention it. I don't know if it was. Yeah, maybe not as strongly as I might have. I, I just remember it was funny when I was at Northland. They were death on the uh, limited atonement. Uh, but all of our, we had these you know, fraternities, but they were they, we didn't call them that. Um, but uh, they were named after major figures in church history. Um, and they, they emphasized missionaries. So Adoniram Judson, William Carey, David Brainerd, and then Charles Spurgeon. And every one of them is a thoroughgoing five-point Calvinist. <laughs> so that's See, I was thinking, like, I think it's true that there were, at one time there was a Methodist church in every county in the United States. So they were extremely... Yes, as far yeah. As, as far yeah. I prob- perhaps I should have said foreign missionary movements, but the, the foreign missionary movements have almost all been Calvinistic. And, and Is that threw you off? <laughs> Is that what threw you off? <laughs> well, I don't remember that being in the lecture, so I was just taking a yeah, guess. You're right. In, in the in, in the American scene... We'll give you half off. Yeah. You can take half. I'm going to be a 4.5 <laughs> on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get a half in there somewhere. <laughs> but you're right that in the American scene... Uh, the Methodists did do very well because some some people talk talk about Methodism as bootstrap theology Uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do what you need to do and that's what built America and that's what built the Methodist church too pull up your bootstraps if I was in that class I'd know the answer (laughs) (laughs) Number three, proponents of general atonement all agree that the only limitation on the atonement is man's free will. I put true, but I'm not sure about all agree. Yeah, that's the that, that's the tension. It's the all. Some do, but remember, some do 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 look at the uh, the atonement at the at the at the election as a limiting factor but it's a but it's an election that takes place in the mind of God after the atonement right so Christ died not knowing for whom he died remember um, and then the election of God limits the atonement but when Christ died he died self-consciously for anybody and everybody but in the notes that first one is that not the general atonement we had three Right. Well, yeah. See, this this 
Remember, we, we said there's the Arminian view, yeah. and then we said there's the uh, the definite atonement and the uh, general atonement. But general atonement, we, we divided into two, the four and a half point and the four oh. point. Remember? I was thinking this was yeah. the Arminian this. Right, yeah, that that is, yeah, that, both of them, well, that's true, but they're all they're all general atonement. They all think Christ died for everyone. Okay, all of those views. Okay, so what are your key texts for limited atonement? And the reason I do this is not so I can necessarily change your mind, but I think I'd, I'd like to see think that you are aware of the arguments both sides, can state them, and... You know, defend one of them. So that's so that this is this is really the goal here is to so that you understand where the key arguments are for both sides, no matter what position you end up taking. I had, it's not in John ten twenty seven through twenty nine. Okay, that, my voice and yes, and then if you keep going, remember the the whole idea that uh, there's certain sheep that there's certain sheep that are not of my fold. I have. You know, and, and they they don't hear my voice because they're not of my they're not my sheep. So, so I think that is one of the stronger ones. Remember, we had a bunch of them that said, you know, Christ died for the many or the, my people or the church or something. But that was not necessarily definitive. But that one, I think, is would we say that's so. the effectual call that we hear Christ's voice? Yes, I mean we call that the effectual call. But the reason is because we're sheep. Yeah. And then we also looked at some others, like the fact that Christ says in John 17, I do not pray for a certain class of people. There's, I only pray for, for my own, um, and such like that. So, and then what, what are some of our best texts for a general atonement? John 3.16. Okay, that was your that was your easy to fall. That was an idea. Because <laughs> because there are those texts that talk about Christ dying for all or the world, but then we gave two texts that we thought uh, that I put out as sort of you know better ones because they actually say something like Christ died for people who didn't get saved. What were those? Anybody? Or seem to say that at least. I'm trying to remember. Was it in Hebrews? Once in Hebrews. Hebrews 10.29. They deny the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. The other one is 2 Peter Mm -hmm. 2.1. They they denied the Lord who bought them. So those are probably your... Your best text, but there's there's a raft of them you could have put down, but those are probably your, your better ones. Okay? So let's go ahead and wrap things up here tonight, then, and talk about the resurrection and ascension of Christ. I think we should be able to walk through this uh, pretty easily tonight. Time this one better than sometimes. Okay? So the resurrection of Christ... First, let's establish it, the fact that it happened. It's anticipated in the Old Testament. And while there's no clear predictions of Christ's resurrection in the Old Testament, there are suggestions of it, um, and two especially. One is Job 19, 25 to 24, we're on page 74, I'm sorry. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet from the standpoint of my flesh, I will see God, 
I will see him again with my own eyes, I and not another. So he's confident that his Redeemer lives, and because his Redeemer lives, he will not stay dead. His, his flesh may decompose, and yet he has a confidence that from the standpoint of my flesh and with my own two eyes, I will see my living Redeemer. So there's a confidence that just as his Redeemer lives, so also he will live again after his death. It's a rather powerful passage. Psalm 16.10 here. Statement here by the psalmist. You will not abandon me to Sheol. This is the place of the dead. I will not stay indefinitely in the place of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful one see the pit. Okay. And then we compare this to Acts 2 where we find that David is speaking not of himself, but rather of the resurrection of the Christ who was not abandoned to Hades and did not see decay. Now this is a rather a difficult passage for us because um, in Psalm 16 there's very little to indicate that David is prophesying about Jesus. Uh, Acts says that, but we look at that and say, scratch our heads and I... I didn't see it until Peter said so, right? Uh, nonetheless, I think what we have here is sort of a both and, not just an either or. I think David says, I am confident that I will not remain in Sheol Hades ultimately because someone greater than me, Jesus Christ, historically speaking, will not see decay. He's going to conquer death, and so therefore I will. So I'd, I'd like to think of that as sort of a both-and passage and not just an either-or. Okay? Okay, and so I give a little explanation of that. I think we also have a few references to um, events in the Old Testament uh, which are analogies of his resurrection. Remember, Christ made this reference to Jonah just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so also the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Okay, Now, it's probably not a prophecy per se. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he uses this as an analogy. There's other texts also that anticipate the resurrection of the godly. Their dead will rise, Isaiah says. Daniel is told in chapter 12, verse 2, to close the book until the end, and then you will stand on the earth. Uh, so there's, 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 there's indications here that there is life after death, eventually, for the, for the righteous, Old Testament righteous, and it would seem that that is impossible uh, without the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So even though it's not referenced directly, I think we still have a, a, a sense in the Old Testament that they believed a resurrection lay ahead and they had faith faith to that end. Remember even even Abraham, remember when he sacrificed or was was about to sacrifice his son Isaac and what was his reasoning? Well, Hebrews tells us he, he reasoned that God had the power to raise him from the dead. And so he was willing to kill his own son because he had that great a confidence and faith in his God 
that God raises people from the dead. He was willing to uh, to go through with that uh, with that to that. And of course, it never happens. But uh, the the thought process is fascinating to us because he recognized that God can and will raise his righteous his righteous people uh, from the dead. We also find that it was anticipated by Christ himself. He prophesied it of himself. All the way back in John 2, very early on in his ministry, Jesus says to them, <coughs> destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And then John makes this comment. He's actually speaking about his own body. So, And, and in the context, it, it's, it's clear that not everybody picked up on what he was saying. Uh, John does after the fact, right? He's speaking about his own body. Matthew 16 in Caesarea Philippi. From that point on, remember we're we're coming off of this, uh, off of the, uh, the 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 suspension of the offer of the kingdom. And back in chapter twelve, they said you're not doing these things in the power of God. You're not the Messiah. You're doing these things in the power of Beelzebub. Jesus lays it on hard, says that you're not going to, there's no repentance that remains for you. You've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. He begins to introduce to the disciples mysteries about the kingdom changes uh, that they didn't anticipate in the kingdom program. And then we work our way into Matthew 16, where we have the very first reference to the church, right? And so Peter is told that uh, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And it is at that time, same context, at that point, he begins to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Which Peter doesn't like it, and says, no, 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 no it can't be. Uh, and he's rebuked for that, but there it is. Here's a here's a, a, a an ironclad prophecy. I am going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay. And apparently, became part of his public preaching too, uh, because this in Matthew 26 indicates this that this is something that it was not just a private conversation with the disciples, but there were a number of people who had heard this prophecy. Matthew 17, 9, then, the following chapter, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anybody that what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. <coughs> so, again, he's not, he's, he's actually getting, trying to get the timing right. Remember, he can't die before the time. And so if this news got out, then perhaps the timing would be thrown. So he tells them not to talk about this until after the resurrection, but he assumes here that there's going to be a resurrection. Matthew 20, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. You also have this sequence that takes place at the death of Lazarus. Jesus says to Martha, who's Lazarus's brother, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he's going to rise again, in the resurrection of the last day. So she has confidence that there is a future resurrection for the righteous. But Jesus answers, I am the resurrection. I, I, I'm, I'm the whole reason that resurrection is possible. I am the resurrection. I embody the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha answers with a with a you know you know a very good answer. It's not a, it, it's pretty, you may say she didn't answer that directly, but she a- actually answered it better than he than than it was asked. Right? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming to the world. And so she she gets it. It's the, she she recognizes the whole picture here. We also find that it's the unanimous testimony of every single one of the New Testament authors. All of them reference the resurrection. And it is singled out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as a matter of first importance. Part of the sine qua non, the, 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 the requisite teachings, the fundamentals of the Christian system. Sine qua non, Latin simply means without this, not. If you don't have this, you don't have Christianity. It's a central theme of every early sermon. You can look those up. Watershed between proponents and opponents of the gospel. This is this is the watershed that uh, causes the turmoil in Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul uh, goes into the Areopagus. He's explaining himself. Everybody's sort of listening along politely until he mentions the resurrection and the place comes unglued, right? Because that's the watershed. Um, he's talking to Epicureans, he's talking to Stoics. Epicureans thought that there was no afterlife, and so they, their, their philosophy was live for the greatest possible pleasure in, in this life. And, and if there's a resurrection, they're, they're flat out wrong. The Stoics, on the other hand, were like, well, there is no resurrection per se. We're going to, we're going to rid ourselves of the prison house of the body and join the uh, great, you know, uh, spiritual collective in the sky. Um, and Jesus says, no, no, there's a resurrection of your body. You'll get a new body. Uh, well, that would blow, blows their whole system of theology, too. So it's the watershed event that, that, that divides all pagan religions from the Christian one. So it's of, of first important. It was also important in order to be an apostle. You have to have seen the risen Christ. Remember, they're, they're trying to figure out who's going to replace Judas. They settle on Matthias, and uh, they, they give a list of requirements. One of them is he had to have seen the risen Christ, which, by the way, is ironclad proof that there aren't any apostles today. <laughs> because no one's seen the, no one living today has ever seen the risen Christ. Romans 10, in order to be a Christian, you must accept that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Okay, so, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I passed upon you what is of, of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. But actually, this, this sentence doesn't stop. We tend to stop there. You know, that's, that's where the Awana kids stop, right? The end of verse 4. But, but it actually keeps going. He also appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, to five hundred people at a time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, me. So, so that that's actually all part of the uh, this little credo that that's there at the at the uh, for the early church. It's not just that he died, was buried, and rose again. To end. It was died. Buried, rose again, and was seen by this person, 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 this person. 
that's I mean it, it's really important uh, to uh, to 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 Paul that these be these all be elements that are necessary to the faith. So how do we know it's true? Well, as Bible believers, I don't think it should be a particularly difficult burden here uh, for for me to try and prove this to you. But of course, you're going to meet a number of people who don't. So, what arguments can you use? Well, firstly, we notice that evidences were really important to the New Testament, New, the, the New Testament scripture writers. Now, you know, it's you know, evidences don't prove, say, the existence of God, and I mean, there, there's there's certain things that evidences cannot do. Uh, but the scripture writers are rather concerned that this could be objectively demonstrated. That Jesus rose from the dead. First, first, first case person knows this. Apostle John is convinced of the resurrection when he saw the undisturbed grave clothes, perhaps suggesting that he sort of miraculously passed through them and left them just sort of laying there. Or perhaps, you know, they said that the uh, the, the face cloth is folded up neatly as a napkin, as so though somebody got up, made their bed, and and walked out. Um, we also find that the angels uh, confirmed here. Uh, in fact, in First Timothy three sixteen, another one of these quasi creeds. Not only was he seen by the twelve and five hundred people at a time, but he was also seen by angels. It was part of, again part of the proof. They knew what had happened and they informed the people. Resurrected Christ appeared on at least ten recorded occasions, and these are documented here by Paul to hundreds of his disciples total. Is there any unbelieving uh, historians? Do we have any records going back there of any? Well, um, that's, yeah, if you're familiar with it, there's the, the quest for the historical Jesus. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a sort of a, a long-standing project quest for the historical Jesus. As far as uh, affirmations that Jesus rose from the dead, we, we recognize um, that that was actually something that they were trying to keep under wraps. Remember, they're trying to hide this fact. They, they give stories. Well, they, you know, tell the people you fell asleep. That's going to be the official report. You fell asleep and they stole his body away. And so that's, those are the kinds of things that end up in the official reports, but the scriptures give us the reason why it's that way, right? So I, I know there aren't, I mean, only secondhand historical, I mean, there are historical records that, yes, it happened, but as far as, you know, firsthand, objective, independent reporters putting this down, no, we, we don't have that. And, but we find in scripture at least the, the, the explanation why we don't. Because they wanted to keep this, they wanted to keep this under wraps. They certainly didn't want him to be a martyr. Or, or a, or a superhuman who, who actually escapes the clutches of Rome. That, that would, that would have been a disaster for Rome. So they, so they spread it. And they know it. They, they know they're spreading this story. So we got fake news going back on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely some fake news here. Trump's right, man. I'm telling you. He's a prophet. <laughs> Don't tell Pastor Brown that. Don't go too far here. 
And number four, Christ acquiesces to Thomas's request for proof of the resurrection. Remember, he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see the the, the holes in his side and the, and the holes in his hand where the nails went through. And so Jesus actually acquiesces, say, okay, here I am. Put your finger in. He doesn't, of course, because he, he's actually ashamed of the fact that he doesn't didn't believe the first time. And, and Jesus says, you know, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Nonetheless, he's, he's very willing to prove, yes, it's me, flesh and blood, touch me. Serious number five, the point we just made here. The stolen body explanation is debunked by the presence of guards to prevent the very, this very idea and the needs for the guards to be bribed into giving a fabricated explanation. And even the Jewish rulers themselves knew this. You know, the, 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 the super high ups knew what had happened. They couldn't deny it. They're, they're the ones who said, let's make up a story because we know what happened. Let's make up a story because that can't, the truth can't get out. How do I know that? Well, in Acts chapter 26, Paul said, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Festus interrupts. He's the, he's the, he's the big guy. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you mad. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul says. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king knows this. He's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped your notice, because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's a guy who's got power of life and death over him, and he says, I... I let, let's yeah, let's let's speak frankly, man to man. You know it happened, and Festus doesn't deny it. I mean, he he does know. He does know what happened. Other alternative theories, such as the swoon theory, make little sense. And so, uh, it's it's well established that he wasn't there. Of course, the question is, why isn't he there? Uh, was he stolen? Did he rise? Or uh, the third option here is the swoon theory that he simply fainted, appeared to be dead, uh, but wasn't. They, they took him and put him in there, and then he, you know, because it was cool in the tomb, uh, a little bit damp maybe, he's able to revive himself and, you know, gather the strength to leave himself. But as Raymond puts out, I, I, it's a pretty long quote here, but I think it's... He had a spear thrust into his head. Yeah, that, that, and that's, that, yes, Raymond, I think, really put words it very well. To believe that Jesus did not rise miraculously from the dead in a renewed body pushes the limits of credibility beyond all acceptable boundaries. It requires one to believe that those responsible for his execution were incompetent. and know he was dead. It requires one to believe that Jesus, though suffering from the excruciating pain of wounded hands and feet, not to mention the loss of blood, the physical weakness and shock to his entire system, which would have naturally ensued from the horrible ordeal of the crucifixion itself and the lack of human care, physical nourishment, somehow survived the wound in his side, 
preparation of his body for a burial, the cold of the tomb, and then pushed a huge stone away from the entrance to the tomb with wounded hands and made his way on wounded feet past Roman guards into the city to the place where his disciples were hiding, and there convinced his followers that he, an emaciated shell of a man, was the Lord of life. Uh, it's absurd. It, you're, you're very, you're, you're very much correct, Dave. And he said, "This that's a silly, silly idea. It's just, and that doesn't make any sense." So he did rise. The fact is well established. But what can we say about this resurrection? Well, first, we have to say it's miraculous. If in fact he died, and it is theologically necessary that he did, the scriptures say as much. His appearance after death uh, must have been a reversal of death in in every sense, a miraculous act of God. And note the phrase here, God raised him from the dead, used 20 times in the New Testament. Okay, Unless we want to say the whole New Testament is peddling a lie, then this actually happened. God raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1, his incomparably great power was exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. So it was miraculous, it was bodily. Jesus didn't simply have a spiritual resurrection, whatever that is. The same body that was taken from the cross and placed in the tomb later emerged. He can follow the sequence of events. His disciples came up and took a hold of his feet. Jesus invites his disciples to observe his hands and his feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. So it's a bodily resurrection. Couldn't be otherwise. And then with his body, he actually was eating fish. Uh, there in, in Luke 24, he's sitting on the, uh, they're, they're out fishing. They come in, there he is with a, with fire, and he's cooking some fish for them. And he eats it with them. So obviously this is a regular, ordinary, normal body. Um, it's not a, some sort of a, uh, apparition or some, some phantom. But yet a body, though, like my bones can't pass through that wall. Right. Right. So there's still an unexplained element of that. Yes. Right? That's our next point, right? Yeah, so it's a glorified body, right? And so, and so, what what all does that mean? And so, the, the, your point is well taken here. Well, a comprehensive description of the glorified body is never given in Scripture. We can sort of comb through the details and pick out a few details uh, that that help us to understand. And this this information is helpful not only for understanding what Jesus' resurrection was like but also what our resurrection is going to be like because we know that when we die, we shall be like him. Okay, so I, I, would, I would think that whatever Jesus' body is like, our bodies are going to be similar. And so this is usually where we pick up most of what we, most of our picture of what we're going to be like when we get to heaven comes from what we know of Jesus after the resurrection. And what do we know? Well, it, appear, it resembled his former body and was recognizable. His disciples recognized who he was. But they didn't always recognize him immediately, which suggests that there may have been some differences. I mean, Luke, the, uh, the disciples on the Emmaus Road didn't recognize him immediately. They were walking along, telling this 
what they thought was a stranger, what had happened? Were you <laughs> were you hiding under a rock somewhere? Did you not know that this happened? And then then finally Jesus says, you know, to me. Ah, and their eyes were enlightened. Same thing happens then with Mary in the garden. Um, you know, she's he's walking along. And there's Mary. She's crying, and you know he he talks to her, tries to reassure her, and you know they've taken the body of my Lord away. And he says, Mary, Mary, and it's like, oh. You know, I thought you were the gardener. <laughs> is, is, the, is the is the phrase that's used? Because she thought he was the gardener. But uh, so apparently there was something recognizable about him. But apparently not everything was the same. So so what is it? Well, we got to speculate. Uh, but perhaps we would suggest he, you know, one, he's cleaned up. You know, he's he's not this bloody mass of of contempt here. He's been cleaned up. Uh, uh, perhaps in his glorified state, then he's he's returned to whatever might be the ideal age. You'd think he's probably close, pretty close to that, you know, in his early thirties. But but he's going to be brought back to a perfect age. He's going to be uh, given the full strength that he might have had. Perhaps uh, you know the 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 lines of weariness and uh, that or or that were. Produced by hard work that uh, may have, you know, who knows? He might have had a couple of scars where he hit his thumb when he was working in the uh, carpentry shop there. And so, so there were probably some 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 things that were improved in him. So perhaps that accounts then for the fact that she's not able to recognize him immediately, even though on a, after a second look, she's like, "Yeah, that is you, right?" So, so there apparently there are some. Improve probably enhancements, improvements that we can we can anticipate. I think when we uh, get to heaven as well. I know Doctor McCune used to talk about how he's gonna he's gonna get a lot back when he dies because he's gonna get his thumb back, his finger back that he shot off, and he's gonna get his colon, and he's gonna get his 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 pancreas, and he's gonna get his eye back, and he, he, he has a whole list of things that he's gonna get back when he gets his hair. I don't want, I don't want my colon. I don't want my colon. <laughs> so. So probably that would be involved. Did you have something to say, Rich? Well, I was just going to say he had, he still had the visible wounds with Thomas. Right, he did. I, I wonder if that's unique to him, though. I, I don't, I don't know this, but my guess is that those are there as perpetual reminders for us. Um, I, I, I would, I would anticipate, particularly, you know, if I lost a limb in life, I would get that back. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have all of the. All of the, uh, you know, all, all the disabilities that you had or developed during the course of life, those would probably be reversed. Although I am speaking from speculation, uh, but I think most people don't, you know, these people who have managed to live to 102, they're not going to come back as 102-year-olds. Uh, at least I, I wouldn't anticipate that. Or infants won't have to come back as infants. You'd think that there would be some sort of a ideal age, for instance, that they would come back as. But it's, again, it's somewhat speculative. All we know is that the, the 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 body that emerges is like the body that went in, but is not exactly in every way like the body that went into the ground. Would you say it's different than 
the bodies that Adam and Eve had? I would say glorified in that. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me let me talk to this last point here. Is perhaps the the question? In fact, Mark raised it. I would I would think we're probably looking at something like Adam and Eve's bodies. However, there's some clues here that perhaps suggest it's more than that. There's debate on it. You know, it might also have heightened abilities, including the ability to disappear and reappear. So he suddenly appeared in their midst. Well, that kind of language could mean he simply just, you know, showed up. They didn't see him coming, just showed up suddenly. Um, and perhaps to go through solid barriers, there, there's this reference here, the door was locked and suddenly appeared. So he must have somehow gotten through, even though the door was closed and locked. They don't absolutely demand heightened properties. For instance, it's possible that the miracle was Christ opening a locked door not walking through a wall. Likewise, the language of appearing and disappearing do not lexically require that he, you know, it was like, you know, the, he was beamed out of there, you know, Star Star Trek style here. So it's, that's not necessarily a, a lexical requirement. It could be simply approached or walked away suddenly. But the reactions of the observer suggest that his body may have heightened properties. I'm 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 not going to go to the wall on this either way. Honestly, um, seems to me that you have a, a regular body, but perhaps it does have these heightened properties. Maybe you can get around a little bit faster, or have have some some form of mobility that we're not aware of. It's it's hard to say. Because he walked on water before he true even this point. So right. Yeah, it could, yes, you're right. It could simply be a miracle. Not necessarily saying something about his glorified body. It could just be a miracle. He just shows up. So it, it could say something about his glorified body or or not. It, I'm not sure I'm, I'm prepared to say with, with definitive. Because that means definitive. my mom could sneak up on me in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I think about too when he was tempted, when Christ was tempted, and then he's on a high mountain, right? Mm-hmm. At one point, on the temple, so yeah. So he whisks around pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do we chalk that up to his body, or do we chalk that up to just a miracle? Okay. So why is this important? Why is it necessary to believe in the resurrection? Well, hopefully we had a good message on that. Easter time, but uh, if you don't remember that yet still, but, uh, well, first of all, it's necessary to his identity. Like all miracles, the miracle of of resurrection validated the messenger and his message. Without it, Christ is a fraud. He said, I'm going to rise from the dead. If he didn't, then he's a fraud. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that he had spoken. Okay, Resurrection is necessary for our salvation as well. First uh, Corinthians 15 is probably our go-to text for this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. We're frauds. Not only is Jesus a fraud, we're frauds. And we're just making this all up. And you are most to be pitied because you, you're just dupes. You, know, you believe something that isn't true. 
More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him from... in, But he did... But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Stop believing. You're believing a lie. It's foolish of you. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. People who have died, they're just dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, so uh, Western Christianity, with its emphasis on the forensic, the, 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 uh, the, the legal elements of the death of Christ, over and against the experience, the experiential dimension of Christianity, has long tended to place more emphasis on the death of Christ than on the resurrection. But this is actually not the emphasis of Scripture. If you look through the uh, the the, uh, the the epistles, for instance, you find a great deal more about the resurrection than you do about the death of Christ, because. While the death of Christ is absolutely necessary to take away the penalty, the legal penalty, the resurrection is necessary to give us regeneration life. And so uh, there has been a tendency in Western Christianity, evangelicalism even, to really emphasize the justification. You don't have to do anything to, to get it. It just comes to you, and it's, that's all true. But recognize that along with justification comes regeneration, which is an, which is also an emphasis that's tied specifically with the resurrection of Christ, and we dare not we dare not minimize that in our in our gospel presentations. It's not just about being declared righteous; it's actually becoming holy. God wants us to become holy, and so uh, the the Book of Acts and the Epistles discuss Christ's resurrection far more frequently than they do his death. A union with Christ in his death is, of course, necessary. I'm not trying to say, you know, minimize his death. That's not at all my point. But the point here is that both are necessary. Not only his death, but also his resurrection. Okay? Because the resurrection validates all that Christ did in death, and it's the basis for nearly every other soteriological blessing. So, specifically here, resurrection validates the sacrifice informing us that Christ's life and death were accomplished perfectly and to God's satisfaction. God raised him from the dead because he was pleased with what had happened. Without resurrection, according to the text above, all men are yet in Adam, yet in sin, and better off living for the pleasures of this life. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, (laughs) the rich man was right, the rich farmer. Go, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's, That's a much better philosophy. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, that's the the whole idea uh, within some of liberal Christianity that Christ might not have risen from the dead, and, and the frank admission that this might be the case is is just scandalous. Uh, if if I, in the words of Paul here, you are foolish, you are stupid. It, why even bother being a Christian if that's true? Go out and live it up, whoop it up. Don't don't bother 
you know, darkening the halls of the, the great educational institutions of, of Christendom. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then, then live for this life. Resurrection is thus necessary to our justification. He was raised for our justification. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. But it also then makes possible our regeneration and sanctification. It is that's the engine. That's that that's the energy that makes it possible to walk in newness of life. We are buried with him by baptism into death and risen and we rise up in baptism, in the baptismal formula. We rise up with him to walk in newness of life, because that's the engine. The energy of our sanctification is the resurrection, not the death. Death, of course, is important, but the uh, resurrection is essential for our advance in the Christian life. So Romans 6, 4, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. First Peter 1, 3, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the or Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord up from the dead, and he will raise us up also. Therefore, your bodies are members of Christ himself, and he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee sexual immorality. This is a larger context here, of course. You know, you know, apparently there was this platonic idea sort of circulating in the Corinthian church, uh, that, you know, Christ, you know, rescued our immortal souls, but our bodies are irrelevant. Do whatever you want with them. Because, you know, the body's destined for the grave, but the soul is destined for heaven. So, so the body is irrelevant. You can, so, some would have been more ascetic, so, so, you know, you know, just, you know, don't do anything with your body. Then there's the opposites. Do whatever you want with your body. And Paul says, no, 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 <laughs> your body's part of the package here. <laughs> so you have to you have to live for Christ, body, soul, and spirit. Not just, not just your soul, but your body too. You have to bring that into line. Ephesians 2, God made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. He raised us up and created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Again, that's the energy. Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, being like him in his death, so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I pressed forward to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what's behind and straining hard towards what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All connected to the power of the resurrection. So sanctification is connected here with resurrection. Also guarantees that Christ is a present mediator in heaven. Christ Jesus was raised to life and to the right hand of the hand, the right hand of God, and is interceding for us. And for this reason, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are faith's, faith's death all the day long. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors whom, through him who loved us because he was raised to life. And then here lastly, a resurrection makes possible the redemption of our bodies, our own resurrection, glorification, and the completion of our salvation, just like he rose again, so also we will as well. So there's the guarantee not only uh, that we are are freed from the penalty of sin, uh, that we are given new life and the ability, the energy, the engine, so that we may walk in newness of life, but there is also the promise at the end of this life that there will be a resurrection that we experience is just like his. Romans 8.11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. 1 Corinthians 15 Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So he's first in, in rank, first in time. And, and the implication is that once he you know, primed the pump, as it were, now this is, this is a pattern that's going to be established. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own time, each in his own order. Second Corinthians 4, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us up and present us with you in his presence. Colossians, since you have been raised with Christ, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So all of this wrap, uh, the, all of this ties together to say the resurrection is quite a, quite a, in some ways, an underrepresented theme um, in Western Christianity and in evangelicalism. Again, there's this tendency to to home in here on the death of Christ, the, the cross-centered life. Uh, and, I, and I recognize, yeah, that I understand what's being said, and I don't want to diminish the fact that the cross is obviously very important. But recognize that that's, the cross by itself is an incomplete picture of what happens, right? The resurrection is necessary, and the resurrection is the capstone. This is this is this is the, the you know the trumpet blasts, hooray! You know the triumph takes place after resurrection. And if we stop at the death, we might end with dismay. Uh, but it's the it's the resurrection that that gives meaning to the death of Christ and 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 and, and validates it. Okay, thoughts on the resurrection? And we mentioned something about when Christ was on the cross and He said it is finished. Mm-hmm. That covered our sin, but it wasn't the finish of His work. Right. Yeah. What it what it means is that His His work of of you know his 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 bearing of the sins and the penalty is completed then, but it, it does not mean that that's it. Yeah, obviously, there's more more to the story than that. And that's probably why we stop that point much more. Maybe maybe, but yeah, I think it's just the end of his sufferings, uh, the completion of his sufferings, but not the completion of the of all that he was going to do. That's sort of obvious from the text. And then finally here, the ascension. Just a couple of pages of this. Again, we can establish that it happened. It was anticipated in John. 
Jesus says, I'm only with you for a short time, and then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you'll not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Same, same thing in John 14. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. I'm going to leave. You heard me say, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back to you. I've told you now before that it happens so that it wants to, when it does happen, you'll believe. Of course, this is that whole context where Philip says, where are you going? And I, you know, we want to go with you. And he's like, well, no, no, I'm the way, but, but you can't go with me. You can't go with me when I leave. You've got to stay behind. Okay, uh, but, he, but he says, I, I'm telling you now, though, because I am going to leave, and I want you to be prepared. And really, the whole John 14 to 17 is, is a preparation for him leaving. I'm going to leave, but the, the Holy Spirit's still going to be here. You know, this, this is sort of stated over and over. I'm, I'm leaving. I have to leave. Uh, I just want you to be aware of this, because it's going to happen. It's going to happen kind of suddenly. Um, and at the, at the uh, close of his ministry, he said, now I'm going to go. To him who sent me. It was also recorded. He was received up into heaven. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. So it's reported in a couple of couple of sources here. It's confirmed. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, we find where 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 did Jesus go? Well. Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at his right hand. So where is he? Well, there he is. And uh, John gets a miraculous vision of it. Acts 9, Jesus spoke to Paul where, you know, on, the, on the Damascus Road. Well, I thought Jesus was gone. Well, he spoke to him from heaven. So we, we know where Jesus went. He went up to heaven. And of course, John, uh, when in his... Uh, Visions at uh, the revelation of, uh, in, in the last book of the Bible here. Uh, Jesus, John is transported up into the seventh heaven and he saw the Lamb and spoke to him after being taken up into heaven. So all, all of the uh, the rest of the scriptures confirm this is where he is. He's, he's, he left. Where did he go? He went to heaven to be with God. It also was bodily. He was taken up before their eyes cloud hid them from their sight so it was visible and it restored Christ to his former glory uh, the, the glorified body that I received as his re- uh, resurrection was not all that Christ would be uh, Acts 2 says Christ raised this Jesus to life and then exalted him to the right hand of God when he ascended into heaven so when he ascended up into heaven he's, he's not only in a glorified body but he's restored then uh, to his position of authority over the universe. He's invited by God in Revelation to sit with me on my throne. Uh, and so, so there's, the, there's the promise. God raised him from the dead and then seated him up at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. God highly exalted him. Christ has gone to heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and all powers in submission to him. Okay, so this is where Christ is now. He's been restored. He's he's at the right hand of God. He's a co-regent over the powers of the universe. Uh, Everything is subjected to him. He has been not only 
not only given a perfect body, a glorified body, but he's restored to every every expression of the authority that was his before he left. So why is it necessary? Somehow the numbering got off on these, but thank you to make heads of it. Well, it confirms Christ's integrity, first of all. He said this was going to happen, it happened. Secondly, it enables the present mediatorial session of Christ between God and man. God, Christ had to leave in order to take his place as the, as the mediating high priest of our prayers and such. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, because he has, he has been, has, has ascended, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then, therefore, approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So he's, he's the, the mediator of our prayers. He is then reciprocally the mediator of the blessings that, that come to us, because... He has ascended up into the clouds. Number three, says number four, but number three, it guarantees an enlarged ministry for believers and gifts in the church. He says, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Okay, so... How, how is the church going to operate? How is it going to be furthered? How is it going to advance? Well, it's tied to the fact that I'm going to the Father. That's, that's where I am going to oversee. That's where I'm going to be the head of the church and oversee it. And he explains that in Ephesians exactly what that means. God raised him from the dead, seated at his, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And a couple chapters later, he ascended up on high and gave gifts to men. And so it's because he ascended up to, on high that he is now in a position where he can distribute uh, to the church the gifts uh, that uh, that they have. And he gave first apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and the like. Okay? And then finally, and I think it's a grand thought for us to conclude here on, the ascension of Christ assures us that Christ is coming back in the very same way he left. This is a promise that is uh, frequent in the in the in the New Testament. If I go, if I leave, if I ascend to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Acts one eleven. This same Jesus who was taken away from you in heaven will come back in the very same way, very same place, in fact, that you have seen him go up into heaven. Ephesians 2.6, God has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Okay? So we're going to ascend with him eventually. In Hebrews 6, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure, enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So, so all of this points to the fact that since he has ascended, he's going to come back in the exact same way and then lead us up along the same path.
So those are that's the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ and why it's necessary. Okay, so that wraps wraps things up here. Any final questions here? You want to? We got nine minutes. <laughs>